0: Well, good morning, everybody. I am glad that you are here. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. We are in part 2 of the day of Pentecost. Uh, so we spent a good amount of time uh, thinking through uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit last week on the disciples in the upper room. We, we've learned from Peter uh, the good news of the gospel that that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that the the prophecies of the prophets like Joel are being fulfilled in the witnessing of the pouring out of the Spirit. And yet, there is some bad news we learned last week. The crowd who has gathered to, to witness this marvelous thing of these disciples proclaiming the wonders of God, this crowd is guilty because this crowd killed the King of Glory. They delivered Jesus up to be crucified. And so now they stand condemned before the one who is not yet, not still dead, but has risen from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of God and now sits on the throne as the king of kings. That brings us to this morning where we're going to see their response. How will they respond to these accusations? Those who killed the Christ. And then after we see their response, we're going to see a summary statement about the early church as the people of God empowered by his Holy Spirit, establishing themselves beginning in Jerusalem. What did they do? What were they like? And how can that inform us as believers today? So that's where we're headed this morning in our part two of the day of Pentecost. We want to see the response of the crowd and the birth of the early church and hopefully see... Maybe some instructive things for us as well. So you should be in Acts chapter 2. Hopefully you've already taken time to sign the roll sheet at your table. And uh, we're going to pick up in verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent about 3,000 souls. Now this morning, we only have two uh, kind of chunks of text to work with. And the first uh, section that we're going to look at here in verses 37 through 41 is, is responding to the gospel. What does it look like to be responding to the gospel? The crowd who has been accused of killing Jesus knows it. And they are convinced They stand before Peter and the rest of the apostles, and they know they are in the wrong. They are condemned. They have great need. And so they say to the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What can be done about my condition? What can be done about my guilt? What can be done about my conscience that now bears witness against me? And Peter tells them to repent. Repent. Turn from their sin. Turn from their wicked ways. Turn from their denial of the Christ. Now, while it isn't explicitly mentioned here, by calling on the crowd to repent, Peter is also calling on the crowd to believe. And we know this because we look down in verse 41, and it says that the 3,000 are those who received his word. That is, those who believed the message And if you just skip down to verse 44, we haven't read it yet, but verse 44 starts with, and all who believed were together. So so by Peter telling the crowd to repent of their sin, he isn't just saying, stop doing bad things, stop believing the wrong things. He's saying, no, also when you turn from your sin, you are turning to Christ. You're putting your faith and your belief in him. We do need to notice, though, that their response to this and Peter's sermon from yesterday is not just a transmission of information. It's not just a commercial. It's not just an FYI. Gospel proclamation and evangelism for you and for me and for any who would proclaim the name of Christ is not just the sharing of a message. It's a summons. It's a call to respond. I think of John chapter 11 when Jesus speaks to Martha in light of the death of her brother Lazarus. They're talking about uh, how things are and who Jesus is. And in John chapter 11, it should be on the screen, uh, it says, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, if you just stop there, that would be the transmission of information. That would be the, hey, I just want to let you know what the reality is like. I just want to share the message with you. And often when we share the gospel with neighbors or loved ones or coworkers, we stop there. If we even get that far, we we proclaim this kind of message as though, hey, I just want you to know Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He looks to Martha and says, do you believe this? He's calling on her to respond, to, to make a judgment. And she makes the right one. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ the Son of God who is coming into the world. Here's the point. Proclamation demands a confession. Proclamation demands a confession. So when we share the gospel with our friends, when we talk about Jesus with our neighbors, part of that message is to give them an opportunity to respond to, to call for a question and say, do you believe what I'm saying? What do you think about what I'm telling you? It's one thing for us to share the gospel with somebody and then go, oh, I really appreciate you telling me that. It's another thing for us to say, so have you repented of your sins? And we might think, ah, oh, that's awkward. That puts people in a weird position, but it's the It's the practice of Jesus and it's the practice of Peter. And as we'll see later on in the Gospels and uh, in the New Testament, as we keep reading, it's the practice of the apostles. They call for a decision. So Peter calls on them to repent, but then to express that repentance publicly, he calls on them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Notice here that repentance, faith, and baptism are all really tightly linked. And why is that? It's because baptism is the public declaration of the heart that has repented and believed. It's, it's this outward profession of what is inwardly confessed to be true. Now, we do not believe baptism is required for salvation. Some people read this text, what must we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of your sins. And they think, oh, well, if I'm not baptized and I haven't been forgiven. That is... Not what I believe this text is saying. It's it's clearly not what the New Testament is saying. So so how do we understand this text? Who were baptized? Look again at verse 41. Those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. So there's a distinction that Luke is making and a distinction that you and I must make between salvation as the substance and baptism as the sign. So if we were driving and we were on a road and it says uh, Grand Canyon 10 miles ahead, it has this beautiful picture of kind of the Grand Canyon and you see that thing. Okay, well, I've, I've got to go past it, but it, I, I, I wouldn't stop and look at you and, and take pictures of me and the sign and post it on social media and say, look, I've been to the Grand Canyon, right? Because we recognize very clearly that there's a difference between the sign that's pointing me to what's coming or what it represents and the actual substance itself, the actual place, the actual Grand Canyon. And in the same way, I mean, again, the the clear illustration that we have in our culture for baptism and salvation is, is a wedding ring, right? So I wear this wedding band to publicly profess to the world what is true in a uh, lifelong covenantal way between me and my wife. But if I take off this ring, I'm still married, right? That, That reality is still there. The substance is still there. It's unchanging. This sign, however, is how I profess to the world I am in a covenant. I've, I've made this commitment. And in the same way, our baptism professes to the world whose we are, that we've repented of our sins. And, and furthermore, just to kind of keep this going, if I never wore my wedding ring, then you may, ha- you may start to wonder what my stance is towards the covenant that I've made. If I never want to publicly show anyone around me that I'm married if I want to actually like hide the symbol, hide the sign that points people to the substance, then there may be some questions about, well, why doesn't he wear a wedding ring? It's so common in our culture. It's, so, uh, it's kind of the default setting of married people that you would wear a ring to show the world who's covenant, that you're in a covenant. And in the same way, we must ask this question. If you say that you have repented of your sins, and have followed Christ and put your faith in him, and yet you've continued to keep baptism off to the side, if you've if you not yet followed Jesus in baptism, if you not yet followed him and publicly professing to the world that you've made a covenant commitment to be in Christ now and forever, why? What does that mean? What is this clear command? What's going on in your heart and mind? And there may be some legitimate things that you're thinking through and wrestling through. But what I want you to see in this text is it's immediate. The apostle proclaims the gospel. They respond and they profess to the world. Now, it's not immediate at Lakeview Baptist Church. Why not? Because I'm not an apostle. (laughs) And because Brian Payne is not an apostle and because we are not speaking in our own power, authorized by God as apostles we're we're bringing to you the Word of God and preaching the Word of God, and so, as believers in a church, we want to discern as best as we can that those who we admit into believers' baptism are those who are believers. Now, for you to respond to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two by saying yes. I crucified Jesus and I repent of that and believe that he's the Messiah, Peter goes, that's what I need to see, get in the water. But for us, we need time which is why if you were baptized as a child, you went through the catechism class here at Lakeview Baptist Church, you met with either Brother Al or Pastor Brian and you learned the truths of the gospel that you confess to believe. Or if you're an older student, you may have gone to a Discover Lakeview class and you sat under teaching, you were interviewed by a pastor. We want to make sure that who we are baptizing are believers because that's who were baptized here, those who received the word. So there's a distinction between the substance, salvation, and the sign, baptism. But what is offered to those who repent? I mean, what is Peter offering these guilty sinners? Two things. First, the forgiveness of their sins. That's huge. Because if you and I lived in a world where what we believed to be the means by which we were forgiven of our sins was to go to the temple as often as we could, to offer sacrifices as often as we could, to obey the law as best as we can, to run for mercy as often as we can, all the while wondering, Am I doing enough? Have I sacrificed enough? Are these bulls and goats and doves and coins that I'm giving, is it enough for Peter to say, hey, if you would just trust in Christ, your sins are forgiven. It'd change your life. It'd be a monumental shift. If you come to Christ with the guilt that you know you have, Peter says, That same Christ, the Christ that you crucified, will forgive you. We are saved from sin. But that's not all. Not only does Peter say that they receive forgiveness of sins, it says that they will receive the promise, that they will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit who's been poured out on the apostles who are preaching now is offered to all who repent and believe. This, again, is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy, but it's also the work of Jesus, who is the greater Moses, who sends his Spirit on all the people of God. Remember, last week we talked about how Pentecost is the fulfillment of Mount Sinai. A new and better covenant is here, and now the Spirit doesn't just fall on Moses, it falls on all flesh. It falls on all those who would believe. So who's this for? Not just the Jews who are present. It is for them. But look again at verse 39. This promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So it's to the present generation It's to the generations to come, your children, those who will grow up to hear this message. It's for those who are far off, those who have not yet heard any of this. If they hear and they believe, the Lord will call them to himself, forgive their sins and fill them with his spirit. Notice the spirit is using the word to magnify the Lord Jesus. And we know that this chapter in Acts is not all that Peter said. We, we see that in verse 40. With many other words, he bore witness. So, so, this is just a summary of Peter's sermon. He kept going, he kept proclaiming this gospel, he continued to bear witness. And that day, 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 people were baptized, proclaiming the, to the city of Jerusalem and to the whole world that their sins had been forgiven, that they were no longer guilty that the Spirit of God that they longed to see and longed to experience now lived within them. But the apostles did not receive a great commission to make converts. They received, like us, a commission to make disciples. And there's a difference between a convert and a disciple. A convert is somebody who just says that they switch teams I was this, now I'm that. A disciple is a lifelong learner, a lifelong follower of Christ, one who is growing in their faith, growing in their confession. So in the next passage, we'll see the result of this gospel work, which is a growing community of believers empowered by the Spirit, united in their faith, and on a mission. Let's look at verse 42. attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. So in our first section, we thought about responding to the gospel. Now in the second section, I want us to think through the marks of the early church the marks of the early church. Here in verses 42 through 47, we have a glimpse, a synopsis, if you will, of what the early church was like. Now, on the day of Pentecost, in a real sense, the church was born. That doesn't mean that God had no people before then, but it's to say that the, the nation of Israel from the Old Testament and the church of Jesus Christ are distinct. What is seen clearly now as the church has its analog in the Old Testament, not in the nation of Israel per se, but in the believing remnant of the people of God that we read about all along the Old Testament. As one of my former professors uh, once said, the church was conceived in the promise to Abraham, grew and developed over the course of the biblical story, went into labor in the ministry of Jesus, but was born on the day of Pentecost. And here in this passage, we see four things that were of utmost importance to this early church. Four things that they were devoted to, that they oriented their lives around. First was the apostles' teaching. The apostles' teaching. The early church was a learning church. Listen to this quote by John Stott. He's an Anglican pastor now with the Lord. He says this, those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth nor did those early disciples imagine that because they had received the Spirit, He was the only teacher they needed, and they could dispense with human teachers. No, on the contrary. They sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and they persevered in it. So so you see Stott's point. we Think about the early church being devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the leadership of the Spirit. Who is the Spirit of truth? And so the early church had a bedrock commitment, we need to learn. We need to grow. We need to understand what God has said. We need to understand what his word reveals to us. We need to understand who this Jesus is. And if you think about the rest of the New Testament and even the first couple hundred years of church history, that is what the church is doing. They are trying to figure out who are we? What has God said? How has he revealed himself to us? Which I think is helpful for us to just stop and think about for a minute. Minute because we as believers in 2023 often feel like we come across questions or doubts or concerns, and it feels like no one has ever experienced this before. No one has ever thought about these problems before. And the good news of church history is yes, they have. Uh, Yes, they have. And and in fact, the vast majority of the problems that we wrestle with and face as we think about our faith, the early church is a treasure trove for us to glean insight, to, to get understanding and wisdom because it's helping us rightly understand what God's word says. So the early church was a learning church devoted to the apostles' teaching. Second, they devoted themselves to fellowship, fellowship, The early church loved one another. They served one another. They enjoyed one another. The idea is spelled out in verses 44 through 46. They believed, they were together, they had all things in common. They sold their possessions and belongings. They distributed the proceeds to anyone who had need. They they received bread, They, they ate meals together in their homes. They received food with glad and generous hearts. They enjoyed the rhythms of life together. This doesn't mean there weren't conflicts. Sometimes I think we, maybe you haven't heard this, but I've heard it before. It's sometimes a critique leveled at the church in the 21st century. If we could just get back to the early church, if we could just get back to how things were in the book of Acts, then we wouldn't have the problems that we have. This early church wasn't perfect. I mean, you just keep reading the New Testament and the churches that Paul or Peter writes to are filled with problems, filled with issues, filled with great sin, filled with great misunderstanding. I mean, you think about Paul's writing to the churches in Galatia, they were functionally denying the gospel. So, so don't we, think, we don't think about the early church as this idyllic, perfect entity because the church has never been perfect, this side of glory. And yet, we know that the Spirit of God comes with gifts, and He bears His fruit in believers' lives. So it means that this group of people, in the midst of their conflicts and tensions and frustrations, modeled things like gentleness and self-control and patience and more with one another, and it produced an effect in their life. It produced joy. It produced love. It produced peace. They devoted themselves to one another in fellowship. Third, they devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. Now in verse 46, it says they were breaking bread in their homes. But in verse 42, it says the breaking of bread. So Luke is writing to you and me a list, a formal list. The apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread, the prayers. So the breaking of bread here in verse 42 is something specific compared to the eating meals together in verse 46. Many scholars believe this means the Lord's Supper. So what they devoted themselves to is a time of gathering together for worship, in fellowship, listening and learning from the teaching of Jesus's apostles, and then celebrating that Through the ordinance that Jesus gave his apostles in the Lord's Supper to take the bread, to take the cup, to remember his death until he comes. Early on, these baptized believers, how they function as a church is by taking the Lord's Supper together. It shows us just at the very beginning how important this practice is for all churches and how important it must be for our church as well. So fourth They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread. Number four, the prayers, the prayers. If you remember in the gospels, Jesus goes to the temple and it's one of the few times we see him get angry because he's walking around the temple and what he sees is not a place of worship. What he sees is a den of robbers is what he calls it he's looking around and he sees these money changers profiting off of the devotion of God's followers, making money to exchange sacrifices or different kinds of money or whatever it was. And it made Jesus so angry that he flipped over the money changers tables. And in one account, it says he he fast fashioned a whip and started to whip these people, driving them out of the temple. He says, you have made this place a den of robbers, and it's to be a house of prayer, a place where God's people can go and express their utter need for God. Just a pretty good definition of what prayer is. It's this confession: that, God, we need you. We need your power. We need your grace. We need your love. We need your wisdom. So the early church devoted themselves to the prayers. this new community of believers, what Paul will say later is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen to one commentator, Patrick Schreiner says, the den of robbers has shifted to a house of prayer and justice for all. Prayer by the Spirit exists as the church's roadway from earth to the ascended Christ. So prayer was the action that united the disciples before Pentecost what they were doing before the Spirit came, and it continues to unite them now. Prayer is a declaration that we are in need of God, both individually and corporately. And throughout the book of Acts, you and I will see clearly that the church is not just a learning church. It's not just a a united church. It's not just a worshiping church. It's a praying church. So what is the result of the church's devotion to these things. We see their devotion to teaching, fellowship, worship in the Lord's Supper, and prayer. What's what's produced in that? What's the result of those things? First, verse 43, awe. Awe. Your Bible translation may have a little footnote there that says, or fear. This is not terror. This is godly reverence and fear. This is Awe. They were filled with wonder. Second, joy. Their hearts were warmed by the power of the Spirit. Right? They're receiving their food together day by day with glad and generous hearts. They are a people united and they are a people united in joy. So awe, joy. Third, worship. What they did day by day was in the context of praising God. That's what verse 47 says. They were praising God and having favor with all the people. Fourth, they were light in the darkness. As they praised God, as they worshiped, as they prayed, as they enjoyed fellowship, they enjoyed favor with all the people around them. They were being salt and light in the midst of a dark and diseased generation. They enjoyed favor with their neighbors because of this new countercultural community of humility and grace. And fifth and finally, they grew. The Lord added to their number day by day, those who were being saved. As the church lived out her life, proclaiming the gospel with their words and living out the gospel with their lives, others around them heard and believed. Students, it is no different today. We are on the same mission. We have the same spirit. We have the apostles teaching. We have the opportunity for fellowship. We have the opportunity to break bread together, to enjoy prayer together, to find community among one another, to love one another and encourage one another. The community that we're living in now is not, in many senses, any more or less hostile to the gospel than it was here in the first century. In the Roman Empire, it was more uh, cool with Christianity than America in 2023. And yet they enjoyed the favor of all the people. It's as if the Spirit was doing something in the life of the church to produce something in the darkness of the world as they were faithfully devoting themselves to what is Right. We are on the same mission. The question is, will we deliver the same message? Will we commit ourselves to the same kind of life? And so I hope in our time that we have remaining, you will spend some time discussing these things with your brothers and sisters. You'll think about, okay, what does this look like for us this week? If we we want to be the church of Jesus Christ, if we want to be devoted to the things that the early church was devoted to, what would that look like in our lives? What would that look like in my life? Or maybe, this isn't one of your discussion questions, but maybe the question you need to ask yourself is, what kind of message am I sharing? What kind of news am I telling the people around me? What kind of questions am I calling for in my life? I pray that this time would be instructive and encouraging and in the right ways challenging for all of us. So let's pray.